This is the Barry Egan Tapes on News Talk. I'm Barry Egan of the Sunday Independent and today my guest is Francis Black. Francis, Merry Christmas. Same to you, Barry. Thanks for inviting me in. Francis, you grew up in Charlemont Street in Dublin's inner city. Mm -hmm. You were the youngest child of, you had three brothers and a... And And Mary, my sister, sister. yeah. Yeah, I was the youngest. What, What was that like? Well, you know, I mean, obviously there's some lovely, amazing parts, you know, great community. Um, I have lovely memories memories of playing out in the street, you know, um, in the summer. And, you know, you'd tie a rope around a lamppost and you'd make a swing and you'd, you know, and you'd be out skipping and all those lovely things. But I know that there was tough times. I mean, we were, it was the tenement houses, you know, and there was like three or four families living in our house and next door there was about 20 families with, you know, 15 kids in every family, you know, so you can imagine. Um, it was a very busy, lots of children. If you can think back to what the tenements were like, I mean, um, and times were hard for my for like my parents. Th- th- was money was short. Money was short. My father would find it hard sometimes. He was a plasterer. He came from Ratlin Island and and uh, he he that was his job. But you know, times were hard. There wasn't many much jobs out there. Um and I know that my mother struggled. She would have went out and worked. She always she always had food on the table for us. That was the one thing. There was a lot of poverty and there was families around us that wouldn't have had food on the table and that's how things were. Um but there was always food on the table. We never went hungry, but I do remember her being anxious, you Can know. You remember your dad being distraught when he didn't have a job? Yeah, I, I, five, I can't. Five mouths to feed. Yeah, I remember my father not being around that much, if you know what I mean. He would have travelled a bit. He would have been, if he could get jobs down the country, he would have went down the country. Um, so I don't have a huge recollection of him much being around um, other than the conversations that would have had, you know, between mom and dad about how they were going to pay their rent, how they were going to could you, survive. Could you, could you overhear this? Oh, yeah. Even as, as I mean, the look, youngest. You know, I mean, there was like two rooms or three rooms, you know what so I mean? So presumably your three brothers were in one room. One and room, you and Mary me and Mary in. in the other room and my parents, there was another tiny little room and then there was a sitting room, do you know? So, and it was all very small. So you could, you know, like say even where my parents, the, the bedroom that my parents slept in was right beside my me and Mary's bedroom but a very thin wall, so you could hear the conversations in, you know, and, and the, the anxiety—not so much raised you, voices, but, but could you, knew, you tell by the tone? You of the knew voice. there was an anxiety about how they were going to pay the and bills. Did, did that go into you at a certain level? I suppose. Well, I, I'm not sure. I suppose anxiety. You know, I would have always struggled with anxiety, whether it came from. My, I know that my poor mother. I know there were Christmases that my mother would be worried about the toys for us and how she was going to pay all of that stuff I mean it brought up and I'm sure that goes on today yeah. Barry you know where there's but, but always also, that anxiety You said that the, you, you, maybe the anxiety would have gone into you but mm-hmm. at the age of three in, in Grantham Street you were, you were bullied <laughs> badly weren't you? Yeah I just remember having like a really tough time my mother started me in school very young she was bringing my brother Martin down he was five um, and she brought me down to the school and it was Grantham Street and the teacher said, sure, what age is she? I mean, she's only just turned three. She said, well, sure, I'll take her as well. So I started school and I genuinely believe, Barry, that it was way too young. Um, and I, I'd say it was kind of low babies. I don't know whether I was three, but I was certainly in low low babies, high babies. It was that before I went into St. Louis, which was in, you went into St. Louis in first class. Yeah, so it would have been, yeah. it would have been around that time. And I just remember there was a little boy that every day, he would just chase me and when he'd catch me, he'd kick me, do you know? And I used to go in, there was a fear every day going into school, you know, of that. And she, he was only a baby, if you can understand. He was only a baby too, do you know what I mean? So I don't think he was a 
bad kid. I think that was his just way of playing. But I was terrified going in every single day. So my mother took me out when I was, it must have happened in did, high did babies. Did you tell your mother? Oh yeah, sure. I was crying every day going into school. Terrified, terrified. So I went up to Louis then and that was fine, you know, but I was still very young. So I probably only went up to Louis. I probably and were maybe, you a, quite a shy child growing up? Well, I, I think I was. I don't think I was very good at, how would I describe it, um, verbalising or, you know, I, I, I used to have, I, I don't know, sometimes when I would have a conversation with people, the words would come out all jumbled up. I often wonder was there some kind of verbal dyslexia I had or something. Or maybe it was just when somebody asked me a question, I'd get so anxious that everything would come out and then I'd get embarrassed. So I quite quickly, in particularly when I was in school, to try not to talk too much and just kind of hide Is that if like I could. Hide, hide emotionally as well? Yeah, just not try and get attention uh, if, if that was possible and not be, you know, the centre of attention. So kind of in school or if there was any the teachers. I just really struggled in school as well. I wasn't, you know, I found it very hard to um, understand some of the stuff that would go on, particularly maths. And I, in hindsight, I realise you know, um, I know Lynn Ruan, who's a senator in Leinster House, she's often talked about there's a, a mathematics dyslexia. And I often wonder, I never got diagnosed, but I often wonder, did I have it? Because I can tell you when, you know, for me. So as a result of that, there was a little voice in my heart, head that used to say, or maybe it was the teacher. I remember one time the teacher, it was a nun um, and she uh, she had me up at the board, at the blackboard, and she would be asking me to write out the answer to this maths problem. And I was so, I got myself into such an anxiety that I started to shake. She had me there, I'd say, for about 25 minutes or half an hour, and she just kept shouting at me and shouting at me. The more she what shouted she? at me, that was second class. So I don't know what second class. I probably was about seven because I was a young. And uh, I was just petrified. You wouldn't get away with that today. Oh, I'll never forget her. She absolutely terrorised me. I was absolutely, and the fear. And I think as a result of that, maths for me was a nightmare. So I would freeze if there was anything to do with maths. And as a result, and I tried, Barry, it wasn't for the want of trying to understand. I really did try to understand. But as a result of that, there was a voice then that just, and she called me stupid that day. Is that that why there, because we... What I've spoken to before, you've spoken about a negative voice in your head. Yeah. That told you you weren't good yeah. enough. Did, did that start? That you weren't bright enough, that you weren't intelligent bullied, enough. Yeah. The, the nun telling you were yeah, stupid. I just think the, yeah, the nun saying that I was stupid stuck in my head and somewhere in, in that stayed there that I just wasn't ever going to come to anything because I couldn't understand the maths problem. And, and in it, hindsight, when you But even back, when you started singing, you start, was it 17 in Slattery's <laughs> yeah. Cable Street? Got you, you your homework done, all right, Barry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the first time I got up on stage in, um, in Slattery's in Cable Street, that I was asked to join a band and, and I had rehearsed with them for months. And when I got up on stage, I just froze. And I couldn't, nothing came out of my mouth. Is I just completely, you, and there wasn't that many people in the audience. Is that because you, you thought you were stupid and you couldn't do it? I don't know. It was just fear. That was just a fear. That was just anxiety. And I just froze. I don't know, stage fright, I suppose. And I had to get off the stage. It was probably one of the most embarrassing things. Was that things low ever. self-esteem from when you were three and, and all the other I, stuff I don't, impacted? I, I really don't know, uh, to be honest with you, Barry. I mean, look, you know, I've always struggled with low self-esteem, you know, up until obviously you know, the last 20 odd years so how, or whatever. how do you analyse that then? I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. I've never really analysed it. Um, you know, 
low self-esteem I know was a was something Did that for lead me. You, lead you to addiction? Oh God, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I struggled with, um, you know, low self-esteem, probably a little bit of anxiety, um, not very good at connecting um, with people. And when I discovered alcohol, it just, I felt, wow, this is, this is nice. This is a nice feeling. And it took away that low self-esteem. And, you know, it, and it, it initially it, I thought it helped me connect you know, but in hindsight. What was it in 1988? You were, you'd start drinking at six o'clock in the after, in the, the evening. Yeah, my, my pattern was a wine. I was a wine drinker. Um, I was a separated mother, two small children. Um, and my pattern was... Did you blame yourself for that? Uh, did I blame myself for that? For... But because with the drinking and all that. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't think my, no, I don't think my drinking would have impacted the relationship. No, um, not so much, but, 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 but was it a was it a passion of, of self-blame for everything? I just think I was lonely and I think, you know, there was wine there and, you know, I drank it and that was it. You know, you try. I didn't drink every night and because I couldn't afford it, you know. But didn't you stop for two weeks and then you came back? Yeah, that was that was interesting where I think that was the real eye opener for me. So, you know, for some reason, I started to really kind of get preoccupied. I wonder what time I can have the, can I get some wine? Can I afford a bottle of wine? You know, and what time I can have it at? And then I would start maybe at six o'clock in the evening um, and I would go until that bottle of wine was finished. And, you know, and it could be maybe a little bit bigger than a normal bottle of wine, you know, or and, and I realised that I didn't. I remember sitting one night and, and having the glass of wine in my hand and I was thinking, looking at the glass of wine and I was thinking, why are you drinking this wine? I was on my own in the house. The kids were being It was asleep. like an out-of-body experience. It was, like, it was like as if something, yeah, something came along. I said, what are, you, what are you doing? Why don't you put that glass down? And I couldn't put the glass down. And I thought that was very interesting. That was, that was the first little bit of awareness for me. I couldn't put that. And again, as I say, I only drank Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays because that's had a few bob to afford the bottle of wine. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, and then I decided, I read an article that was in the Irish Times about a journalist who had the same drinking pattern as me. She even drank more. She would have been a spirit drink, so she would have come home in the evening. She would have opened a bottle of wine. Then um, she, she was would, an alcoholic and then you realised. Well, no, she went, she went to Stanhope Street and she, she went, she wanted to stop drinking and she couldn't. And she went to Stanhope Street and, you know, she got help. And I thought Stanhope Street was kind of like... Stanhope Street was like a program for those who were trying to stop drinking. And I thought it would be like kind of Weight Watchers or something like that, you know, where they try and they tell you how to control your drinking or why do you, you know, under, I just wanted to understand the powerlessness. I didn't understand the powerlessness and why I want, I had tried, as you said, to stop drinking for two weeks and I couldn't. So that was interesting for me. I went back. So anyway, all of these things were on my mind and then, I decided to ring up Stanhope Street, go and talk to somebody there. And when I went and I met with the counsellor and I told her what my pattern was. And she said, Francis, I've no doubt that you have a drink problem and you need to come here and you need to go and you need help. So that was the beginning of it for me. And I was shocked. But it wasn't an easy journey because 2002. You, you yeah, but I, I, I well, 2002 was different because it wasn't mother, alcohol. Your mother was dying, wasn't she? Yeah, my mother. No, my mother wasn't sick. She passed away in 2003, but she was... 
she was slightly getting dementia and there was, I knew I was losing her and I was very close to her. Um, she was my best friend. She lived next door to me. She was my rock, as she was all of us. Mary would say the same. She was an amazing woman. Um, and she lived next door to me and I knew that she, you know, you'd go in in the evening to her, like, because I used to kind of take care of her. And she'd say, where's my mother? You know, um, I better go home to see my mother. And I knew those kind of things. And I just... I felt I wasn't coping very well. So I went to the doctor and he gave me a prescription for, you know, antidepressants. Yeah. But as well as that, he gave me sleeping a prescription tablets. for sleeping tablets. And I didn't, on, on my word of honour, Barry, I was not aware that you could get addicted to sleeping tablets. And quite quickly, I got addicted to them. So, um, and what that means is, you know, instead of kind of taking them before you go to bed, I would take them maybe, I just pop a little tablet. No, they wouldn't make you sleep. That's so the gassing. Yeah. They were benzos. That's what they were. So, you know, that's what they were. Um, and so before I knew it, in a matter of a couple of months, I realised, oh, my God, I think I have a problem here. And I went to see a therapist and I told him an amazing therapist called Peter O'Sullivan. And he said, no, you need to come off those tablets and we need to get you into treatment and get you off them and do it properly. Is do that, it that's properly. When you went to a place in Kerry. And that's when I went down to Kerry, down to Castle Island, and I went to Talbot Grove. And that was Did probably. That, your life? that was one of the. You know, and I've spoken to you about this before, Barry, driving down to. In the uh, green Mon- Mondello. In, in the Mondello car, and it was a really cold, freezing November, October, November time. And I remember looking at the windscreen wipers and the rain lashing against the windows and thinking, my life is over. I had to cancel a tour. Um. My life is over. How am I going to face my my the, beautiful husband? The two kids behind the door. My my poor mother. My my children. My children were older at this point. Like they were both in college at this point, and I was just so ashamed. But it was the best thing. I yeah. mean, on my word of honor, Barry, I cannot tell you. And that's why I really, I suppose, what I got out of Talbot Grove. You know, I was down there for four weeks. And what I learned about myself, what I learned about um, the power of addiction and how it can rob you of everything that's good in your life without you even knowing. Do you know, I think that's what, that I didn't even realise. I have an addictive personality that I didn't even realise that sleeping tablets, how naive could I be? Honestly, and I really mean that. I'm not telling you a word of a lie when I say I didn't realise that you could, because the doctor gave them to me, then it's all okay. But quite quickly, I I realised I was in trouble and I went and I got help. And before I knew it, I was going down to a treatment centre. Now, it was brilliant. I have to tell you, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because my life changed dramatically after I came out of that treatment centre. Was it the following year your, your mother died? She left you a few My mother, my mother passed you put, away. you put that money towards I went back to college to and I decided... Yeah, I wanted... When she passed, I wanted to do something that would make her proud. Now, she, I knew she was proud of me and that last year we had together with my mother was one of the most special years I've ever had with her. You know, my mother wouldn't be in the type of person that told you that she loved you. You know the way they are, you know, the, the older generation. But we were able to sit out the back and even in her little bit of dementia, we sang together. I told her I loved her. She told me she loved me. We'd hold hands, which was really bizarre, you know, when we'd be singing songs. You know, it was just there was a closeness there that was mind blown. And then when she passed away, you wanted to do something meaningful. With I the money. really wanted to do something. So I Not decided rather than, yeah, rather than getting a new kitchen or something, I 
I, 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 my that, daughter actually, life. my beautiful daughter Aoife said to me, Mom, why don't you? I said, I'd love to go back to college. And she said, why don't you do it? And she picked up the phone, bearing in mind now, Barry, that I left school when I was 16 because I had this thing in my head that I was really not, you know, bright enough, Stupid not intelligent enough. Because of the nuns. So going back to college. How did that make was you feel? really scary, yeah. really, really scary. And I, 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 it was very challenging. And there were times where I wanted to leave a few times. I thought, I can't do this. But, you know, um, I, there was great teachers at the time and, uh, or, you know, tutors and they were very supportive. And it, it got me to a point, what I really wanted to do was go back to college, understand addiction, get my head around addiction. I wanted to really learn about addiction and the power that it has over people, you know, and how it had over me. Went back to college, but I wanted to study so as that I could become a therapist in an, in a treatment centre environment because the the um, therapists in, in Talbot Grove were powerful and they changed my life for the better and I wanted to be able to give back. So I went, I did all of that. And you set up the RISE Foundation? I went back, to, I, well I studied, I, I trained in the Rutland Treatment Centre which is, for me, was amazing, amazing experience and the therapists there were amazing and to be trained by them was incredible. And then I left Stephen Rohn, who was the clinical director at the time, just retired after a few years myself and Stephen then set up the Rise Foundation. So, I mean, and that the Rise Foundation is still my passion. So just to explain to listeners what the Rise Foundation is, I felt there was a need to set up a treatment centre or recovery centre for families, not for the person in addiction, because there are good treatment centres out there for those in addiction who want recovery. But I really believe that when there's when somebody in your family has an addiction, the whole family is impacted in a very negative way. And often family members have very high stress related illnesses, anxiety, um, mental health, depression, not knowing how to cope, can't function. So and I and I got to see that while I was working in the Rutland when family members would come in. And there was one young woman who came in one day and her husband was in, she was only in her 30s, her husband was in for gambling and alcohol. And I remember watching her walk out the gates of the Rutland again on a freezing cold October, November day. And she was, she was so petrified. She had her two small children with her. And her, home, her only worry was how am I going to stop him from gambling again? Because they'd lost everything. I mean, the house was just to be about taken off them. And, and I was saying to her, you know, but you have to take care of yourself now. This is your time. You need recovery from the trauma and the impact of what's happened. And it, without blaming him, right, it's almost to separate herself. And she, in her mind, well, if he gets recovery, we'll all be OK. But sometimes that doesn't happen. What was it like for your own family then? Well, I don't, I mean, look, my kids were very young. So when I went into treatment back in, in for for when I went in for the, the sleeping tablets, um, because it was such a short period of time, I don't think they really even noticed the impact on me and I don't think it really noticed. Then they were very young when I went, when I when I got help back in 1988, they were only babies, you know. So um, I don't think, I don't know, to be honest with you, is the answer. They're brilliant k- kids now. They have really you know full lives um they're both musicians my son is studying now PhD he has two children 
um, Mason to be, I'm a grandmother now. So I don't know. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't know if if it has. But I can only tell you now yeah. that they're really, you know, they're really amazing kids. Um, they're adults now. They're almost middle aged now at this point. But um, so yeah, I mean, so the Rise Foundation for me was something that. I, I love working with families. So now we run programmes. We have a programme over in Angel Street, the Carmelite Community Centre. It's a terrible time of the year, for, especially with all the alcohol. This, it's very, very, around. yeah, it becomes very heightened, um, I think. And obviously families, an awful lot of families, you know, there's an, it's a worrying time and anxiety gets very high and people worry about the impact on not only, you know, if you have a son or a daughter yourself, Barry, and you're, son or daughter is going out on the tear every weekend you know or even Friday, Saturday or Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday you know and that's quite normal in Ireland if you know what I mean you have an anxiety are they going to be okay are they going to be safe um, are they you know somebody attack them will they attack somebody else will they knock down somebody in their car and it's the same for partners and it's the same for parents you know if you have a parent the anxiety always and then of course you know, sometimes families, somebody will come home drunk and there could be, you know, certainly aggression. So um, there's always that anxiety. Tell you know? me about the music. What, what, what do you get out of it? Well, music is food for my soul. I mean, you know, music has been my therapy for many, many years. And, you know, music, I have used music as a tool for me to be able to express my feelings, I suppose. Um, and, you know, for me, a song would be my way of communicating with people. It would be easier for me to sing a song than to talk to people. That That's back in the early days. Um, so... How do you look back on that 17-year-old in Slatteries? Yeah, I mean, look, did, I'd, did love to give, just, I'd love to, to give her a hook. Just, just, just to go for it, you know. Well, no, I went the seven... I, after that happened to me in Slatteries, I said to myself, I will never sing again. That was it. I'd made up my mind, never sing again. Until I was about 19 and my family, maybe I was 18, maybe a year later, my three brothers and my sister Mary were doing some gigs around the country and Shay, my eldest brother, who I adored, um, said to me, look, why don't you come along and sing some songs with this? So it was, I was in a lucky position. So you had, on stage, you had my three brothers and my big sister beside me so all I had to do was sing I remember for me the first one and it was in Taylor's Hall and I was singing two songs so all I had to do was sing three verses on my own but they would come in and you know sing on the choruses and these amazing harmonies but if I forgot anything or if I got any kind of stage fright Mary would come in so yeah. yeah so it was fine so and I knew they had my back. So they were almost carrying you, you know. And I that's when I got the bug. So I got through that first gig with them. And, and that's the when bug I, like? Well, it was like a very amazing natural high. You know, when you get through a song and people, you're standing on stage and people clap and you're after communicating the song, you know, that people liked. Yeah. I suppose you feel validated. And it would have been the first time, I suppose, that ever happened where I felt validated. You know, really? I felt... Yeah. You know, well, they like me, you know. Seriously, yeah. Yeah, they like me. And um, and of course, my my family, like, and particularly Shay, and they were all going, well done. You know, my family validated me, you Was know. Was it true the first time you sang as a kid, you hid behind the couch because you were frightened of everyone's reaction? Yeah, the first time when, I, of course, but I think that's most kids, isn't it really? You know, I mean, 
you see, we used to have sing songs in the house. My father would have people come down on Sunday nights. There'd be a few people and then they'd come down and there'd be sing song. My father would bring that tradition from Rattlin Island and everybody had to, anybody in the room would have to, if you couldn't sing, you had to tell a story or say a poem or something or tell a joke. And it came to my turn and I didn't, I mean, I had, I'd learned um, uh, Wrap Me Up in Your Old, what you call it, that, that song in school when I was in second class, the teacher, Miss Maloney, had taught it to us um, or in third class. And um, so she, uh, she taught us that song and I remember going behind the couch and singing it from behind the couch because I didn't want people looking at me. I mean, I think that's quite normal for most yeah. kids, isn't it? You know what I mean? But I had to sing. So you had to sing. So, And would you sing songs now that you sang when you were 18? What what, what goes, do you, do you put yourself back in that place? Well, you see, I would have been, I would have been a huge James Taylor Carole King song or uh, uh, fan. And um, yeah, I would say, if I was singing at a session, I'd probably be inclined to sing an old James Taylor Carole King and song. And how do you have to find the time for everything? Like mother, Rice Foundation. Grandmother. Grandmother, sorry. <laughs> Mother, grandmother, Rice Foundation, musician, singer, um, politician, senator. Yeah. senator. It can be quite challenging. And I have to say, being in the Senate was one of the biggest honours I've ever received in my life. Um, I'm being what elected. What who called you stupid think now? Is she still alive? I don't think so. I don't know. I, and I think, you know, there's many... Um, I think the most thing for me, to be honest, very... Being elected into the Senate, into the Shannon, into Shannon there, and and I wasn't expecting to be elected. You know, I just thought I'd run in the campaign and learn from it. Um, when I remember walking through the gates the first day, I kept thinking, you know, and you walk through the corridors and you have to go down to where you sign the register. And I kept thinking somebody was going to tap me on the shoulder and say, "You shouldn't be here. Get out." You know that kind of. But because I come from Charlemagne Street. But it wasn't the low self-esteem thing of you're not good enough to be here, get out. Like when, you, I, when you went to college. I just to, could not believe that I was walking to the gate. You have to understand. I would say it came back from, I was born and reared in Charlemagne Street in the tenements. We used to walk by Leinster House and you'd see, and that was where, you know, another class of people were. So for me, it was like a dream I still think back on that morning and I was by myself walking through the corridors and I, you'd see an usher standing, you know, and um, you'd see him and I was thinking, oh God, he's going to say, what are you doing here? You know, it's just an old trigger. And he'd say, good morning, Senator. I was like, what? What the hell happened there? Like, And then you'd walk to see somebody and they'd say, good morning, Senator. It was like a movie scene, a dream you know, that you just thought, oh my. And I swore then that I would make a difference and I would not leave Leinster House unless I made a difference. And I've been working extremely hard on issues that I'm very passionate about. How have you made a difference? Well, on legislation that would have been, that I've been involved in, that I've introduced some, you know, I've been very, very passionate about the Palestinian issue for many years. And I introduced legislation around the Occupied Territories Bill, the Public Health Alcohol Bill, even though it was a government, um, it was a government bill. Um, but I spent a lot of my time um, trying to persuade people to support it. And thankfully, we got it passed and it 
got past. There was only one or two things that we lost on. So, you know, I mean, obviously, um, and I think that that has definitely made a difference. And my presence in there, because I was able to talk about the people that I work with in the Rise Foundation, um, I'm very. I'm on the Justice and Equality Committee. I've been so very involved. How do you find in time for all of it? Because I know you're you're about to go on the road with Mary Coughlin and Francis and um, uh, Sharon. Sharon Shannon. Yeah, it's hard, as I say. It is hard. Um, and you know, but fun. I feel like I'm doing things. Do you know? This is the way I feel, Barry. I really feel I found what I've been looking for. Now, just to quote the U2 song, I feel so grounded in myself. Um, and I feel so happy and content. I, I'm exhausted sometimes, but I've never been happier. I'm living a life beyond my wild, a million times beyond my wildest dreams. I cannot believe that I've come to a place of I'm walking, I'm going into the, I'm going into Shannon there and I'm working with incredible people in there with the civil engagement group, amazing independent senators. There's brilliant people in there. I know we. We get a bad, you know, sometimes we get a bad press and we get a bad doing off. But there are really good people in there. So I'm doing things, the homelessness situation, mental health, the Palestinian situation. These are all areas that I'm really passionate about. Then I'm able to go over to the RISE and do the RISE programmes and work with families. I love that. I love the RISE programmes. We have a team of amazing therapists. They are incredible. They really are. And I work with them. We deliver the programmes to the families. We meet these amazing, courageous families who come into us looking for support and we give it to them and we change their lives. I'm able to get up and sing on stage with two amazing women, Sharon Shannon and Mary Coughlin, who I consider my really good friends now. We have the best laugh. Honest to God, we have a mental time and we have a mental time on stage as well. And we never know what's going to happen on stage. You know, anything could happen on that stage, you know, especially in the encore. That's brilliant crack. I have my children. I have my husband, who's an absolute walking gem. I have my grandchildren. Honestly, I feel so blessed. Thanks so much for coming in, Francis. Thanks, Barry.